Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. This is our review of Back to the Future Part 2, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Thomas F. Wilson, and Elizabeth Shue. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, released in 1989 to much fanfare and success. Concocted as the middle chapter of a trilogy. So the first one's this massive hit. They go to Bob Gale and Zemeckis said, sequel, we're going to do sequel. And they come back with like a script for the ages 300 something pages no way it's one movie because they both are like we should stretch this into two movies we really want to try to do this but the original script had them doing everything they went 2015 Jeez. all the way back to 1885 there it was it's parts two and three in one script they're like we can't do that we got to split it in two and spielberg is actually the one that negotiated uh, to the studio for them to say you can let them film this back to back so you have to pay you know this much for this movie now and this much for you know the other one to be made, or you can pay this much now and triple it when you want to do the third one because this one's going to be a hit as well. Like he knew this was going to hit, and the studio listened to him because he is Steven Spielberg, and that's you know that's why he's the executive producer here, and that's how they got this movie made. So they made this and shot part three back to back. And Brian, I remember going to see this in theaters when it came out. It was like yes, got to go see it. You know, obsessed with Back to the Future at this point. And we went and saw it. And at the end of it, they like showed you what you see at the end of it. Now, like here's things from part three. And I mean, that that was worth it to go see it a couple of times in the theaters. I remember distinctly doing that with my family in 1989. Yeah. I remember, I think we saw this one in the theater as well. Uh, we all really, really liked back to the future part one. And, um, you know, we were young when it first came out. I would have been seven or so. And, uh, but it was one of those things that we'd rent a lot. Like mm -hmm. we, we were video rental people quite a lot. So we would go to the video store once a week and we'd pick out three or four movies and that would be our, our movie viewing for the next couple, you know, weekend or whatever. And that was always one that we picked up a lot. And so, yeah, when this came out, I'm, I'm pretty sure we saw this in the theater as well and agree, you know, you got to the end of the movie and then you saw the scenes from the next one and you were like, holy crap, but you have to wait a whole year to yeah. get the next one. Even though it's done, we didn't know that obviously, but you had to wait a whole year. So it was like, oh, this is going to be great. Well, luckily they shot that next one out. This came out in November of 89. They got that next one out in like May of 1990. They actually pushed it out a little bit earlier. Nowadays, like you would have to wait a year, year mm -hmm. and a half to get yeah. it right. But they, they were smart to get that one out a little sooner than they anticipated, but it was definitely a big summer. We'll get to number three when we get there. But yeah, I remember seeing this dude and was again, one that I think I saw in the theaters, maybe more than once. It was, you know, it's one of those kind of movies because it came out around holiday time. So it was, you know, it was, that's what my family did at the holidays. Like we'd go to see a movie Thanksgiving, we'd go see one around Christmas. This was definitely in the theater still at Christmas. So we, we saw it at least twice. And then um, we would rent it or, you know, if we get one of those showtime weekends or whatever, we would videotape stuff on VCRs, you know, all the time. And I know we had Back to the Future 2 on a tape, you know, somewhere. So I definitely saw it several times i always had strong reactions to this movie though and i had one again watching it for this review as we got into it because i always felt like there was there were parts of this movie that didn't want me to like it and at all because it just does things that are so different than the first one and then there's definitely part of it that wants me to just fall back in love with the other movie that we just saw and i don't know we could talk about it as we get into it but i definitely had, had strong reactions to it and i remember not being as over the moon about this and where it was going after seeing this one like I was the first one. Yeah, I mean, to me, I really liked it when I first saw it. And I, I this is a trilogy that the, my wife and I watch on a regular basis, at least once a year. And yeah. we enjoy all three of them. I'll, I'll, a little spoiler there, but... Um, and there's things in this movie I think are just absolutely fantastic. And there's things in this movie that drive me absolutely batshit crazy, right? And I think <laughs> we'll agree on some of those. Um, but um, overall, I, I, I like this one, you know, as, as far as I thought it was neat the way that they did things moving in and out of, you know, three different time frames and doing it so interestingly. 
Yeah, there's a lot to it, and this one is dense. Like the last one was pretty straightforward. It starts mm-hmm. in 1985, you go back to 55, and the whole plot is we got to get back home, right? And all the twists and turns that happen in between are all there to service that. This one has a lot more going on in it because as a sequel wants to do you've got to raise the stakes and because it is also setting up a chapter that we know is coming you know they made no bones about like yes there's going to be a two and a three you're going to get both of them we didn't know what three was going to be until you saw two because they teased it at the end of it like we talked about but you knew there was going to be another one so there's a a built-in bit of anticipation like i know they're going to have to get us somewhere and tell a story and i always think like when you're doing films and when filmmakers make stuff trilogies are, are kind of the thing. Everybody wants to have like a franchise and stuff, right? The middle chapter is the one where, where you can really nail it or lose an audience with it, right? And like you, you either get it right or eh, maybe you misfire on it, you know? And this is one where there's a lot riding on it to make it work. It's got to carry all the weight of that first one and it's got to set up a third one while also being its own story. And that's one of the things to think about as we go through this. And I'll ask you to you know, think about it now and we can answer it at the end is, if you just watched this one, could it just stand on its own? So we'll we'll come back to that as we get into it. Yeah, well, before we get into it, Jay, why don't you go ahead and give us a plot summary, if you can, for oh. Back to the Future Part 2. All right, so a lot to unpack. Let's see what we can do here. So Doc takes Marty and Jennifer to 2015 because something has to be done about their kids. And what has to be done is Marty's got to take the place of his teenage son, who he's a dead ringer for, when some psycho named Griff, who's Biff's grandson, tries to involve him in a break-in or something that's going to land them on the USA Today and ruin their lives. Marty succeeds in doing this, uh, but we do learn that uh, what gets his temper is when someone calls him chicken, and he doesn't like that very much. It's a new character bit for Marty. Marty also decides to cash in on the opportunity of being in the future by buying a sports almanac that will allow him to bet on the outcomes of games that haven't happened yet when he returns to 1985. Doc intervenes uh, on this, though, and tosses the almanac in the trash, but happens to be that old Biff is still hanging around, still alive in 2015, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to follow Marty and Doc because they've got to go pick up Jennifer, who's been taken back to her house. They had to knock her out because she was asking too many questions, and the police found her and said, ah, let's go take this lady back to where she lives so they go to get her and doc and marty retrieve her and return to 1985 only to find it's not the same hill valley they left behind old biff actually succeeded in stealing the time machine going back in time and giving the sports almanac to himself uh, where he could start betting on things grew rich and powerful and eventually took over hill valley having doc committed and even had jordan mcfly killed so he could be with lorraine Marty learns all about this uh, when Biff got or learns all about when Biff got the almanac. So he and Doc have to go back to 1955. So because it turns out he went right back to the same night as the Enchantment of the Sea Dance. That's the same day that Biff got the almanac and try to get it back from him while not interacting with the other versions of themselves carrying on the events of the first movie. A lot of twists and turns happen, but Marty eventually steals the book back and burns it, seeming to reset the future. However, before he and Doc can travel back to 1985, the flying time machine is struck by lightning and vanishes. As rain starts to pour on a despondent Marty, a Western Union telegram man arrives with a letter from Doc in 1885, letting him know that he is alive and making a life in the Old West and telling Marty not to come and get him because he is fine. He does tell Marty, though, where he has hidden the time machine in 1955 and what parts he'll need from existing technology to get it running again so he can go back home. Marty finds the doc in 1955 who just sent the original Marty forward. Are you following all of this, folks? And Doc passes out from the strain of this as credits roll. And then we get a glimpse of scenes coming in Back to the Future 3 as well. So a lot going on in this one, Brian. And I think the best place to start is where they start us. They pick us right back up where the other movie landed. But, of course... Claudia Wells not able to reprise her role, so they replace her with Elizabeth Shue as Jennifer in this. And uh, she had her hair dyed for another role at the time, so that's why she looks a little different. But they reshoot the last scene where we have to take off in the Flying DeLorean. Which is cool. I mean, I, I thought that was kind of neat that we get to relive that whole scene. And they did a good job, I think, reshooting it and, and getting it to look very much similar to what we saw in Back to the Future 1, especially considering the fact that Elizabeth Shue's taking over the part of Jennifer in the movie. Um, and yeah, you know, we get 
basically a recap, right? A recap mm-hmm. of what at the, how the first one ended and where we're going to start the second one, which is into the future to look at what's going on with Marty and Jennifer's children. Whoa, what a fun time. Exactly. So, we got to go fix your kids yeah. and all that. But we also see another coda there. Biff comes out to show off his new matchbooks or whatever to, to Marty, and he sees the time machine. And yeah. he kind of morphs back into old Biff for about two seconds with that. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, and I, I like it's a good plot point because, of course, uh, he doesn't know what he's seeing, right? He has no clue what's going on other than, holy crap, what was that? And then in the future, when they get there and he sees this again, I love the line they drop where he says, a flying DeLorean? I haven't seen one of those since. Hmm. Oh. Wait a second, you know, a yeah. real good. They do a really good job at calling back to certain things, which I which I like about this movie. Um, we got to talk quickly. Marty, of course, is told by Doc what's going on, shown the newspaper that his kid's going to get arrested and put in jail and their name's going to get buried and all this other stuff. And then we get uh, Marty acting like his kid. But before he can do that, uh, Doc used the the uh, knockout juice on uh, Jennifer, and there yeah. wasn't enough to keep Marty Jr. knocked out. And so he all of a sudden shows up in the same place that is supposed to, where Biff is supposed, or Griff, I guess now, is supposed to meet him and cause him to join this escapade that's going to get them in trouble. So uh, yeah, real... there's a lot of, there's a lot of this. Robert Zemeckis wants to play with this whole, I'm going to have the same actor in the same scene and make it as seamless as possible where you're playing across from yourself. Michael J. Fox will get to play his daughter and his son at his home and an older version of himself <laughs> while the younger version is there later. Like he's got a lot going on in that scene. There's a, there's a ton to unpack as we get to 2015 though. The, the first thing is, and Gail and Zemeckis admit like, we know we ended it on a joke. We felt like we had to pick up with that thread, you know, for whatever. And we didn't know what to do with Jennifer. She hadn't been a part of this story. How are we going to explain all this to her? So we just decided to make her hysterical and knock her out. Yeah. Just maybe, but it was all we knew to do. And poor Elizabeth Shue, bless her heart, great actress, but given nothing to do in the first part of this movie. She gets a little bit there at the end of the 2015 segment. But the first act of this movie is all the 2015 stuff. And she's just given nothing to do there except freak out in the in the car like, oh, I'm going to get to see my wedding and my house and that, that, all the like teenage dream stuff. Right. And Doc is like, um, this is making me really uncomfortable. Um, here's a laser ray from Star Trek to knock you out. And it just, you know, it's <laughs> sort of hypnotic thing. And it knocks her out. What's funny is like what he says is like it's some sort of hypnotic uh, sound. She'll be fine. And I'm like, they have that now. It's called eye dosing. Like, it's a real thing. You can load up binaural sounds, you put them in your earphones, you go to sleep. You know, it's it's supposed to do the same kind of euphoria to your brain. And I thought that was neat, though. It, you know, people have made jokes for years about all the 2015 stuff back to the future got wrong. And some of the stuff that they got right. The Cubs did win a World, World Series by the time 2015. Well, it actually happened in 2016. but it was, yeah, yeah, but they, they were on the road. Like, yeah. they were actually a decent team again, which yeah, at the time, they were not. Mm-mm. And were not for a long time. But all the other stuff, too, that you have 3D movies still. You don't have Jaws 17, but you might as well with all the Jaws knockoffs <laughs> now. You know, Spielberg still making, you know, a Spielberg still making you know, big blockbuster movies. Yep. You know, you got that. You've got all of the automated stuff that like we take for granted now, but it's very much part of our lives. Like you walk into a restaurant, you don't have to talk to a person to order anything anymore. You can talk to a screen, you punch a couple buttons, you pay and you're walking out. You're right. You're, you're done. Um, and they still, you know, are fixated on the idea that Pepsi was going to win the cola war, probably because they won the licensing war. Well, there you to go. Be in the yeah. Movie. But yeah, but but I love all that iconography stuff because in some ways, like people can get filmmakers can get real afraid about doing that stuff because they're like, oh, God, we're really going to date the movie if we're wrong about it. But what I'll appreciate about Zemeckis and Gale is they said, eh, let's just have some fun with it. And what they basically did is said, we're just going to take everything about Hill Valley now and we're just going to flash it forward 30 years. So it's the same stuff. It's the same town square. Goldie Wilson, the eighth is running for mayor whatever is this because in their head and this is something that i think is fun is 
the more things change, the more they tend to not. Like, they just look a little different, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's even a great song about that, I would say. But, but I, <laughs> I, lo- I love that motif, and I love all the fun stuff that we get to see Michael J. Fox do. I got a kick out of the way the kids in the future are supposed to dress, though. I don't know about you. I never wore my clothes inside out in 2015, but I always wanted a pair of Power Nike laces. Well, and they made them. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, that that's the cool part, too, is is that – all these things that were were neat that kids thought were so cool in 1989, they had people working to make those things happen now because of this movie, like a hoverboard. Yeah. It's out yeah, there. People, it exists. People are trying to get that going. It exists. Yeah. It's not as good as what you see in the movie, but it does exist now. The lace, yeah. the the laceless shoes that automatically tighten on you. Nike spent money and time developing one pair of those just so they can say that they did it, like this movie said crazy stuff like that self-drying jackets that exists yeah it's it's wild so i think that's one of the cooler parts is that people looked at this movie and said well we need to actually make this happen now because it's pretty cool um the other thing too the the 80s cafe that was phenomenal right i mean michael jackson reading you your menu options ronald reagan asking you what you want for a drink uh just as as a max headroom character but the best the best part was at the end when it like freaked out you got Ronald Reagan and the Ayatollah Khomeini right next <laughs> <Yes>. to each other. <laughs> it's like what the hell? arguing with each other. That was the best. Yeah. It was the best. No, it's it's all the iconic stuff you want, and then you have the old stand up video game mm-hmm. which they're setting up, obviously for part three, the Wild Gunman game, uh, which you know like was a corner of my Pizza Hut. You know, I don't know about yours, but I mean that's that's what I saw. All that kind of stuff still exists, and you have all those brands too. There's all of that stuff yeah. still around, but it's it's. It's there to show you that, yes, we're going to have all these cool you know, widgets and stuff going on in the background. But the story is that Marty McFly's children make bad choices <laughs> because he also, as an adult, we will learn, makes bad choices because he lets his temper get the best of him. And that's that's a change in this movie. Yeah, it's a change in the direction of these films that I think I appreciate more now being older than I did maybe when I was watching it coming up and that I you know, did at any point in my life when I've seen this movie is they definitely leaned into the idea of like, we need to make these movies for a younger audience to really enjoy like it. And we need to make it on a sensibility level that they can tap into more than making it more adult and more complex because the temptation in a sequel is you have to make everything bigger and better and in some way more complex. Well, we'll have all the stuff be more complex, but the story we're really going to drill down and simplify. So they leaned into two things. We've got to give Marty like an inferiority complex for some reason. He's got to have that because he's already kind of got one in the first movie because he just thinks he's a loser. Right? Yeah, but right. now he's not a loser. Like we know that. So what do we do for him? And they leaned into the guy that probably had the best next to Fox had the best acting chops of the bunch. And that's Thomas F. Wilson. This is definitely a Biff movie. Mm -hmm. And it's at the end of the first act, it becomes a Biff movie, you know, until the end of it. And they leaned into a guy who had a lot of talent and could carry it. And I thought those were interesting and kind of bold decisions for this. Cause this is a major franchise at this point. Well, here's my problem. Um, And the use of the word chicken as a trigger for Marty just seems weak. We know that he's insecure, right? So you mm-hmm. can play off the insecurity piece, and that'll be just fine. That's what we did in the first one. Why can't we do right. that now in the second one? Why do we have to introduce this really kind of dull and boring plot summary of when someone says he's a chicken, all of a sudden he has to prove them wrong? Mm-hmm. I've never liked that. And they do that in this one, and they'll continue that into part three as well. So to me, adding that was, it just t- kind of turned me off a little bit. Can I tell you, I hear what you're bumping up against because I bumped up against it too and still do to some extent, but thinking about it in terms of these guys, Gale and Zemeckis, wanted to simplify the problems of the movie. And in that respect, they decided to kidify it a little bit. And I don't mean that condescendingly, but that's exactly what they did. You call someone a slacker, there's like a lot of layer to that. Sure. Like, you know, there's that's an adult problem. Kids are not slackers, they're kids. You know, if if, you, if an adult calls a kid a slacker, that's an asshole adult, which your principal was. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, that's, that's what it was, and Strickland still is, in in this timeline. But w- when you you kidify it a little bit, 
it makes it a little more accessible. Where I think they go horribly wrong is when they go back to this alternate 1985, and this becomes a very different movie. We'll get to that in a minute. But I'm with you. I, I, that trigger seems so juvenile for mm-hmm. what we're watching and what we've done, right? For a guy that, like, you're solving your life's problems because your son is going to go to prison and your daughter's going to try to break him out and it'll ruin your already worthless life at this point. And th- that's, I, I don't know, it, it seems almost too simple. And it, it yeah. doesn't quite land. Like it's almost like they're not as interested in this stuff as they are in trying to get back to what they want to get to. I think it would have been to me, like the whole thing in the part one was that George McFly was in insecure, mm-hmm. did, didn't think he had the ability or the talent. Marty McFly is the same way. Why can't we go in there and have Griff say something like, ah, you probably couldn't do this anyway. We don't need you. And that trigger him. Like, yeah, you do. You do need me. I can totally do that, right? That kind of thing, I think, would have worked a little better. The chicken thing, I agree, is so juvenile and just silly that as an adult, it sh- you would think that wouldn't matter anymore. It's also because Thomas F. Wilson is playing Griff like some kind of cracked out Bugs Bunny villain yeah. all of a sudden. He's just screaming every line. He's dressed up like a skateboard weirdo or the lead singer from offspring or something like that (laughs) you know he's got the frosteds the whole bit you know you got you got this girl going he got the scrote and she like puts a claw hook in michael j fox's nuts you know i mean this is you've got a lot of mixed stuff going on here because you've got like you're going to be afraid to say chicken but i'm going to grab you by the balls in the same scene like this movie didn't know what it wanted to be for half of it and i i mean i don't know in 2015 i guess people were less uh susceptible to pain because he punches them with that gloved thing on and it's like just a little hit right like a slap (laughs) yes like damn that should knock him out and I mean, what same they, with what the they do, attack. <laughs> it's what they do here, though, is what they're going to do in the third act of the movie, too, is we're going to replay the stuff that made the first movie magical. We're going to replay the chase around the town square. Mm-hmm. But this time, instead of skateboards, we have hoverboards. And they made a big deal with Mattel about, oh, yeah, that's a real thing. And you know, Zemeckis pissed people off for years. I hold on to like, no, that's a real thing. They just can't release it to the public. When he finally was like, nice. y'all still believe that? You know, but but it was great marketing, right? Cause, but it's it's reminding you of all the things you like, but it's not quite the same stuff. It's like listening to a new singer sing your favorite band's old songs. It sounds good. sounds slick and polished, but... It's just not quite it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not quite the same. Like, you and I both like Motley Crue, and we both like the John Karabi Motley Crue album. But listening to him sing Vince's songs just isn't exactly the same. I would no disagree more with you be... totally, but uh, that's, well, fine. I, that's I, fine. I don't think it's I've the same. heard no him than... sing them live, and it was fantastic. Not that he can't do it. It's just <laughs> a different experience. Moreover, if Vince tried to do his, it would work. Like, it's just not as no. the same stuff. Um, so you, you had that kind of thing going on you got all this crazy action but i'm reminding myself i'm watching this i'm like i just saw this movie like you did this and the thing of that made that chase around that town square so good is that was 45 minutes into the movie they had set all that up and it was supposed to be this big moment for george and it turns out marty upstages him yeah. you know and he doesn't intend to and it, it drives the plot further this kind of works because marty jr doesn't get arrested the paper changes real quick but then we got the other problem of Jennifer goes home and we discover that Marty's life is not all that grand, right? I mean, first he's got to wear not one, but two neckties to work, which I don't know what kind of hell you envision the future <laughs> of, but that would have been awful. I could, I, I can't even wear one necktie. Let me tell you right now, <laughs> I put a necktie on and I choke. I, I just can't do it. But, that's besides the point. Uh, th- yeah, we go we go back to his house and we find out that uh, he's some kind of a low level worker at a company, and he's got a guy trying to get him in on some sort of a like a fraudulent wiring of money or some sort. I don't know. What oh, hold on, not a guy. Flee from the red yeah, hot chili it, right. peppers. Flee <laughs> is your middle management code. Needles, <laughs> yeah, uh, needles, and you you find out that they they live in this modest house, and uh, you know Lorraine looks awful or sorry not yeah Lorraine uh the mom looks awful um and she's you know barely getting by and 
Well, George, you know, we've replaced Crispin Glover. We don't want to pay him any money. So we get a stand-in to be him upside down. Poor Jeffrey Wiseman had to do that and try to do Crispin Glover's accent. And it just, you know, just doesn't work. No. And what I did find funny is the hydration of the little mini pizza to make that food. That's kind of a cool idea. I mean, it looked like an Instant Pot kind of cooking. Right, four what is it, four have. seconds to cook a pizza, right? Yeah, awesome. It, it like went from like a small you know cellophane bag to this huge gorgeous. Thing. <laughs> yeah, so, but but the other things you get like you can walk into your you know the kid walks in is like I want channels twenty three, forty eight, and forty eight, and not Alexa puts it on the television yeah. for him. Right, there you like go. You can wire your house up to do all of that now, so they're not wrong. That but happened. You got the Marty thumbprint Jr. to get in. Yeah, yeah, you got Marty Junior. You got Grandma and Grandpa. You've got daughter, Martina. I can't remember her name either. Comes down. It's Michael J. Fox as a girl. Uh, so I'm like, man, everybody in this family looks exactly the same. Also a plot thread they're going to hang desperately onto, as we'll, we'll talk about. And then you get Elizabeth Shue, who's wandering through all of this, like the young Jennifer going, what the hell is all of this? She sees her wedding photos like at the Vegas Chapel of Love. It's not what she envisioned. And then the older version of her walks in. And I got to say, the thing they got most wrong about the future is what Elizabeth Shue would look like in 2015. She would not look like she was 75 years old with silver hair. She does not. She looks like she's supposed to look in her 50s. And it's, yeah, they were completely wrong about that. But they did play it for a joke. She passes out again. Because... They don't know what to do with that character. And I'm going to ding them for that. Like, okay, you don't know what to do with her. So don't just shove her to the side. I think Michael J. Fox even gets a line like, why don't you bring her if you're just going to knock her out? And I kind of think the same thing. Like, she is so inconsequential to any of this that it it doesn't even matter that she's there. And I kind of hate it because it would have been fun if Jennifer had become an active character in the story. I agree. I mean, why bother bringing her along for the ride if you're not even going to bother using her? Uh, I think they could have just said, um, you know, uh, you stay here. We'll go take care of it and we'll be back before you know it. Yeah. And let her just get too curious and wander off yeah. and like, you know, pass out from the shock of it. And then you can set up the rest of it. The rest of that works. It's just, yeah. it's just ridiculous. But yes, needles is trying to get Marty into some sort of scam or whatever. And his, Japanese boss fires him. That was a thing in the eighties. We're all going to be working for the Japanese, you know, all that stuff, <laughs> which we are. It's just not as obvious and racist as this, but whatever. Well, we're working more so, for the Chinese now. Well, this is true. So we, we also the country wrong, but so, yeah, well, yeah, they tried. They, they were in the right vicinity geography wise. but Marty picks up his guitar. He sounds like crap uh, because apparently he, you know, Lorraine in the background is dropping some line about, you know, you can't say, you know, your father's chicken because he has that horrible accident and he ruined his whole life. And I'm like, what accident? How? Tell that story. And we never get that story either. So that's, that's the part that's kind of stupid. They just dropped that line in there, I think, to explain the whole thing. I don't know. But yeah, he's, yeah, but he's still buying nice guitars. So, I mean, props to him for that. That's that's a pretty sweet looking uh, (laughs) uh, red that he's got there. The thing that got me about that whole bit too is, if the first movie's premise was, I'm not sure I would have been friends with my dad in high school, then this one's is starting out to be, I, I you really don't want to know what your life's going to be like in 25 years, because it may not be all the fantasy land that you think it's going to be, because yeah. why? Life, that's a why, because that's what happens to you. No, totally, and uh, he's be- he needs to learn that he can't uh, let this chicken thing get to him because this is what he's going to end up. But he never, he never sees this uh, part of him. Though it's only uh, it's only Jennifer who sees this uh, happening to him because Doc has him off somewhere else, and uh, Doc is the one who goes to the house to get Jennifer out of there. So Marty never does get to see what his future looks like other than his son's a loser, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because dog does make him stay behind. He gets out of that car though, at some point to go do something because that's when Biff steals the time machine. Yeah. I can't remember why he gets out of there either. He's going and looking at something. I think he's, I think he's more confused at what everything looks like and he's just kind of exploring the area. And, uh, that's when Biff, yeah. Old Biff gets in now old Biff. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about old Biff. Great character, right? 
just yeah. fantastic. He's still, you know, the same uh, Biff Tannen that he was in the in the first movie. Uh, but I, how does he know how to use the damn time machine? Thank you. He's seen it run twice, and he wasn't there to make it operate. So how does yeah, he know he what knows. buttons to push, where to go? The only thing I can think of, and I'm going to help the movie out tremendously here, we know the time circuit board has a memory feature to mm-hmm. it. That will come up later in the movie when it's fritzing out, because that's how Doc winds up where he goes. Yeah. Maybe he started just, I mean, it says what it is, like where you are, where you're going, where you were. Like Maybe he's like, okay, I know this is a time machine. Clearly it's got to work some friggin' hell. And he just starts futzing with it, and he figures out, and, and he goes through it. It's like, oh, 1955. I was a kid then. That's a good time to do this. It had yeah. to have been on that date, because there's no other right. way he would have picked that specific date. If anything, he yeah. would have probably gone before the manure hit him the first time. Right, you think, right? <laughs> and stop that. He'd have thought happening. ahead. <laughs> right. No. If he thought ahead, but Biff's not a think ahead entirely kind of guy. Well, well you see that he's gotten smarter with his old age, right? Yeah. Because he does correct himself, the younger himself, when he gets mm-hmm. the make like a tree and get out of here. It's yeah. leave, you moron. Yeah, exactly. yeah I, so, I, lo- I love watching Thomas F. Wilson act across from the younger version of himself. Yes. He, Like I said, this movie becomes a Biff movie here. And I'm kind of here for it because mm-hmm. he's at least for him because I think he gives a fabulous performance. As yes, if Biff would have become an all-powerful evil millionaire, mm-hmm. billionaire, this is what it would have looked like for somebody like that. Yeah, uh, but and, even before then, well, I mean, it would, this would be after that. But I love the interactions he has where he's hiding behind the telephone pole or whatever you want to call that, mm-hmm. listening to himself talk. You know, get pissed off at the guy the repair guy for giving him a 300 you know car bill to fix his manure problem and he's like oh, i remember that it's just fantastic yeah. character acting no when Loved he's it. old biff he's awesome yeah when he's griff he sucks i'm oh, sorry yeah. that, that character's terrible but it, it, it's all the setup because the car comes back and we see biff fall out of it and he's coughing and wheezing and it, it was only years later that i realized what we're watching is watching him disappear like, if Marty had completely disappeared in 1955 yeah. in the first movie, this is what that would have felt like and looked like. Because yeah. he, he wouldn't exist anymore. He's erased his own existence from that timeline. you know. And so he, he goes back to 2015. Marty, Doc, Jennifer get back in the DeLorean. They go back home, and they take Jennifer home. And they, they drop a little line that lets you know that things are not quite what they left. It leaves her on Jennifer's porch. And he says something to Dot like, I don't remember there were bars on the windows. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Which is a sign of you live in a neighborhood where you need bars on the windows. Yep. And Hill Valley, as we've established in the first movie, not exactly Beverly Hills. <laughs> also, not a dump completely, you know, by itself. It's just a middle town, small little town. They go back. Um, Marty uh, gets dropped off at his house. Doc's like, I'm going back to the office to destroy this thing because he's decided the time machine must be destroyed. He's also yeah. started that whole thing. This is too dangerous. There's too many things that could happen. Um, we've already had the whole, you know, pick up the time almanac thing and the little jokes about the dustbuster and all that crap. And Marty can't get in his house. And this is where the movie becomes something for about 10 minutes here that I absolutely hate. It becomes a very ugly, ugly movie for a little while. We get a lot of real bad stereotypes. We get a lot of shit going on in it that even in 1989 was too much and now really doesn't play marty goes in and he you know his family's not at his house anymore because we'll find out most of his family is dead and shipped out around the world and he's now in the black neighborhood and he's you know jumps in his window like he normally would and he lands on some poor teenage girl and her angry father comes in with the baseball bat all jacked out and just starts wrecking the room to try to you know kill him and he drops some line about you tell those people I'm not selling, you know, I'm not going to be terrorized. And I'm like, this movie just went into a very dark, weird social place that I wasn't ready to go to after I'm afraid of being called chicken. Like what the hell happened, man? Yeah. I mean, it basically drops the hint that they're going to send henchmen to rape your kids, uh, to get you to get out of your house so that they can build whatever they want to build over there. Uh, obviously I think that's supposed to allude to Biff's company, 
yeah. trying to buy out the lands to build whatever casino or whatever he wants to put on the land. But yeah, that took it in the wrong direction completely. I'm with you there. I, not really needed. He could have gone in there and jumped into the parents' uh, room and startled them and realized he was in the wrong place and had to get out of there. But then, not only that, we get off to see uh, the principal at his yeah. place, and uh, he's decked out in bullets and shotguns. Yeah. It's a and, freaking drive-by happening. And the then, yeah, house. exactly. A drive-by with machine guns shooting at a house. Like, yeah. holy crap. What the hell kind of neighborhood did this become? Yeah, this movie became Chicago. freaking Scarface all of a sudden. <laughs> and that was not what I was... I had Bugs Bunny 20 minutes ago on the screen. And now I've got this. This is not... This is weird. And it's all... You know, you got Sammy Hagar's Can't Drive 55, which I'm like, I love that song. Totally wrong song for the motif you're trying to <laughs> No doubt. Uh, but, you know, you get something a little heavier, but whatever. Um, you got to do your universal music licensing, so we'll go with that. But, yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's you get all that ugliness right there, and then you walk into the source of it, and it's that downtown has become basically little Las Vegas mm-hmm. in Hill Valley. Biff has built an empire, mostly to himself, um, and I love how he has a museum of himself that you can walk through and hear the whole story. Of, of, I call it the Museum of Exposition. Yeah. Because it needs to tell us how all this happened. Biff won the lottery and did all this, and he's just the luckiest man in America. And Marty, with one magnifying glass, is like, oh, you're dumb enough to keep that book that I had the idea well, for. That wasn't Marty. That was Doc who found that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. The, I'm like, that That plays off again. Like, we just went from kitty kind of movie to really ugly, stereotypical movie to now, like, we're back to, like, kitty villain movie again. Well, we or got the, the evil rich man. We got our little montage of how Biff became who he was, right? Yeah, uh, right. So they had to figure out how to put it together in the first place. Why not just put a little video together that shows explains absolutely everything? Oh, he had a winning streak. Oh, he did this and that. Oh, he bet on this race and that race and little the. Now he's a millionaire and whatever. Well, okay, now we know how he did it and what. In 10 seconds we know exactly how biff did what he did and and we saw the sports almanac so there you go tie it all together and now let's meet evil rich biff right and boy <laughs> is he an evil rich white trash version of himself you know let's all <laughs> glory talk about the three thugs that he has there right oh, you know yes. what they remind me of have you ever seen weezer's red album cover Yes. They remind me of three members of Weezer on that cover. You got the cowboy. Yeah. Oh, man. You got Billy Zane is one of them, by the way. Acclaimed actor Billy Zane is one of the things. I love how they, I mean, Biff has always been surrounded by toadies, Mm -hmm. right? 1955, the old 1985. Always three. Yeah, there's always three. There's always, you know, he's always got a little posse. And I love when they grab Marty in the casino. They're like, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And they hit him and we get the voiceover like, the easy way. Yeah. And they drag him upstairs (laughs) where Biff is in his, you know, Taj Mahal. Oh, hold on. They drag him upstairs where he's knocked out and we get a return to when he got hit by the car and he wakes up and who's there? Mom. Mom. Mom with enhancements. (laughs) Yes. These things, as Leia Thompson refers to them as. Uh, But you talk about an actress that's given nothing, nothing to do in this movie at all compared to the last movie where she had so much of a character. Mm -hmm. And she is just, I had to marry him because George died and we were desperate and well, why not? And she's she's the drunk again. Uh-huh. This time she's like the classy drunk. She or the the dressed up drunk. She's not the poor middle class. You know, lower she's the class drown drunk. my pain in in alcohol yes. drunk. Yes, that's what she was is. She, yeah, which she was beforehand, but now she just is in a glitzier place. Yeah, but it's still the same sort of hollow human being. And like we said, she's had plastic surgery done. She you know she's all tricksied out because that's what Biff likes, and she's trying to intervene on behalf of her son and i love biff comes in and like did you get kicked out of another boarding school that what you realize is like this version of 1985's marty is like a problem child mm-hmm. like big time rebel 
go against the grain. He's got some issues going on that we, we're not even going to touch on <laughs> because we've already gotten in dark, weird places with this movie. Um, and, you know, the way all of it plays is it's kind of cartoony. I mean, we've gone back to being a cartoon for half a second. And and again, I'll give Thomas F. Wilson some credit. He's he's playing a role and he's giving it a lot to it. I don't I still there's something just kind of missing about it that I'm just not like totally latching into because they keep wanting to replay beats from the other movie. You talked about the being knocked out from the car wing. Like they want to replay that beat, but there's no like heart to it. Like when that happened before, it was funny and it was kind of offsetting, like, oh, my mom is like coming on to me here because she doesn't know she's my mother. You know, well now she knows. You know, this is my son, and he has to kind of process all the crap that's happening to her, and it just doesn't play the same. It's just not the same humor. It's not the same kind of reaction I'm supposed to have to it. I don't know what reaction I'm supposed to have to it other than to be horrified for poor Lorraine. Well, I think the reaction is that poor Marty keeps seeing his mom in way different lights, right? At first, he saw her as this really hot, uh, you know, young girl, and then he had to keep his mind away from it. Now he sees her as right. this old, like, dressed like a hooker woman, right? I mean, that's what she looks like, and he has to deal with that. So every time he seems to see his mom, she's completely a different person, yeah. yet with the same character flaws and same character traits, you know, uh, just yeah. emphasized in a different way. Um, so I think that's what we're kind of supposed to get from that is that uh, oh, here's another version of Lorraine that Marty now has to deal with and process. Um, mm -hmm. You know, his poor mom she keeps changing all the time <laughs> based on what his actions are. Um, what I what I found amusing in this whole section of the movie uh, where we find out, you know, obviously he escapes from the, the, the mansion, goes to find his father's grave to make sure it's true that that george is dead finds the grave doc finds him there because he knew he'd come there for somehow brings him back tells him all about how biff won millions of dollars and this and that and they find the sports almanac dumb enough to hold that damn thing in his back pocket the whole time but there it is sports almanac they, he goes back to confront biff we never learn how he got into the damn place, right? And Biff even asked him, how the hell did you get past my security? We never find out. He just somehow magically did. And then Biff proceeds to explain to him exactly everything that happened. Why do he, we do he this? Is doing, he's doing the Austin Powers riff of the James Bond villain that tells too much when he should just kill Mm -hmm. the guy because here's how marty gets him biff's in the hot tub scarface style with a couple of girls watching fistful of dollars which is a great clint eastwood movie by the way i agree with biff on that and marty walks in and just says three words to him gray sports almanac you know and the look on biff's face is like get out girls party's over you know and then he starts going like okay how'd you find out about it and he begins to lay it all out for him. Marty tells him, you know, what he knows. Biff tells him everything else. And then, and I think the reason he does it is because Biff also pulls a gun out and basically tells him something he didn't know, which is, I, you know, I also got told by this old codger that told me I was a relative that I didn't recognize that if I ever saw a, a wild scientist or a, or a kid come up and ask me about this book, that I should take care of him. And the funny thing is, I'm going to get two McFlies with the same gun. Yeah, totally you know, blows I, that one. Yep. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think you could kind of have alluded to that at that point. When oh, you get yeah. the chase up the rooftop. He's going to do this. And Marty acts like he falls off the roof. And it's like, whoa, okay. And you get the great reveal that Doc was floating below him. And, you know, he knocks him out with the gullwing door on the flying DeLorean. And that's when we launch into what I will just go ahead and say now is the best part and my favorite part of Back to the Future 2. It's the long act three of going back to 1955 and having to intercept this book while the other movie is happening. I, I honestly think, Brian, this is the movie they wanted to make and they just had to get there. Mm -hmm. And it's been a bumpy ride to get there. But from the minute they get back into 1955... And all the stuff that they have to do to get the book, all the machinations of that, getting to watch Biff walk around with old Biff and see Biff from a, a point of view we hadn't seen before, right? To get a little bit into him. 
I love all of that. I have a blast watching that this part of this movie. It's so much more fun than the first two thirds of it. I'm going to agree with you um, on that. I think that they did a masterful job of getting the old scenes mixed with the new scenes in there. I'll tell you a couple things. You know, Marty has no fashion sense. That dude just, and it'll continue (laughs) into part three as well. I just like, what the hell is that, that you picked up a leather jacket and some glasses and a fedora. I mean, honestly, what the hell? And, but great walkie talkies though, by the way, that's the part that bugs the crap out of me (laughs) right there. I'm okay with a walkie talkie. But you're in the back seat of Biff's car as he's driving in a tunnel and you're yelling into your walkie-talkie and he doesn't mm-hmm. hear it at all? He doesn't even hear Doc's responses at all? Come on, man. That that I, bugged the crap out of me. I think if the, they had had any inkling as to what cellular technology could be, they would have written that into the 2015 part. And Doc could have gone, here, Marty, use this new fangled thing that we've got. It's it's a great new phone, you'll see. And, you know, years later, we'd all been like, oh, look, iPhones or yeah, you know, whatever. Text, text. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would, it, would have made, it would have made a lot more sense. Or maybe have him cower down instead of like, he's literally hanging over the back seat talking yeah. to Doc. Like, cower under the blanket and talk to him. Yeah, it's, it, there's, there's a lot of Marty being almost caught. By Strickland, by Biff. Yeah, but he never gets get the book. Biff doesn't act like he even hears him for a minute. He never even I, like flinches to see is there someone behind me talking? No. It's like Yeah, it it's the same problem that I have at the end of Halloween four when how does Michael Myers drop out of the <laughs> the fog onto the truck while the rednecks are driving away? It you don't know. It just it just happens. No. Um it, I, but I'm with you. Yeah, it is a problem. I'm telling you, I look over that, though, mm-hmm. because I think this movie becomes so much more fun when we're back into the chase kind yeah. of scene. No, I agree. Because you've also got the fun of watching Marty try to do all of this while the other Marty is doing all the things he's got to do. So you've got all this interweaving timeline shit going on, which makes it more fun than the first two thirds of this movie have been. For sure. And I, I'm digging that. And I, I, I do like the fact that he has to go through like a lot of sneaking and snooping around. He's almost got the book and then nope, this book, the cover on, you know, the dirty magazine book. Yeah. So, ah, oh, you know, had to deal with Strickland again. So he's got to go get it again. And the fact that he finally gets it from him and poor Biff's end is to run into the manure truck. Okay. Again. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to say this about that. I'm like, okay, that's funny. Now again, we've now played that joke twice, really three times. Cause we're going to talk about it. You know, before it happens again. But we've played that joke now twice. Let's not do it again. Spoiler alert, they're going to do it again. Oh, of course. <laughs> it, it, it's of course. going to become a thing. And, you know, we've dropped a lot of stuff in this movie that obviously is foreshadowing, too. We're going back to the Old West. The Clint Eastwood references. Doc has dropped and talked about, I've always wanted to work and live in the Old West. Yeah, there's that. The time circuits keep flickering and they, they show 1885 slap sets. I got to get that thing fixed. You know, there's doing that. I'll tell you the other character gets no, doesn't get enough to do in this movie. That it's to the detriment is doc. Doc doesn't give anything to this movie. No, I, I, except, except run around and read the newspaper. Well, yeah, that's kind of all he does. He's there to explain the plot. <laughs> and that's about yeah. it. And that, right. that's because like you said, this is a Biff and Marty movie. This is really a Biff movie mm-hmm. with yeah. a lot of Marty in it. And I think that's why. And, and, because and Doc will get his due in part three, right? A, a lot more yeah. part three. But this movie was meant to focus on the Biff character because we got to introduce Buford, right? Who's coming yeah. up? Um, so it's going to be Biff Biff's movie, and then Marty is the plot foil. And so that's really all it is. So yeah, Doc doesn't get a whole lot to do in this one, other than drop some hints of what's coming in the future in part three, and kind of just kind of explain what's going on. Uh, to us all uh, that's really all his role is and i'm okay with that um especially considering what we're going to see in the next movie i think christopher lloyd does get one cool scene where he's walking around where the 1955 version is trying to set up the lightning cords yes. and all that stuff and he's like don't you mean you want the three eights or whatever and he hands him the right wrench yeah and the guy's like yeah thanks a lot appreciate that you know and he's having a conversation with himself and it's kind of funny and i was like okay 
I'll give Christopher Lloyd. That's kind of his one scene in this movie, and he does a good job with yeah. it. I mean, it's fun. I miss. I, I, what I'm telling you is, I miss having Doc. Yeah. And oh yeah. Do things together because that's what made that first movie so much more fun. Is Marty was the central character, and he had to bring everybody along with him. He had to get his dad to do the stuff that he needed to do to become a man. You know, had to get his you know his friend Doc to do what he needed to do so he could live. Yeah. All the while doing all the stuff. And now this one, it's very much, I have to foil like this evil, rich asshole. Um, <laughs> that, that's also the dumbest man that ever lived too. Because uh, this one thing is money can't buy you intelligence. And Biff's proof of that. And so they, they finally get the book though. And we burn the book and we, we have the, the, instead of the picture and all the people showing back up or the brother and sister showing back up in it, we now have the newspapers changing. And and we now know, like, yes, he's alive. Everybody's alive. Yay, we've won. And there's a lightning storm going on, as we know, because there is one that's part yep. of the plot. And we get this you know, cool coda where lightning hits the DeLorean. And I love how it, instead of leaving a fire trail straight, it, like, curls in the air because it's in the air. It's like, yep. it's like where did the... Where did the DeLorean go? And we get a, we do get a really good bit with the Western Union people showing up. Going, I like we had that a bet part. in the office. Yep. <laughs> Looks like I lost. That was an awesome scene. I yeah. really enjoyed. Like out of nowhere, this car pulls up, and it looks like some sort of like gangsters coming out at you, right? right. He or like G-Man. he's gonna pull yeah. a gun on you, and Marty's just yeah. sitting there like, "What the heck's going on?" And he's like, "I got something for you." Pulls out this letter. We've had this in our possession since 1885, and uh, we had a bet in there that uh, if this Marty character was going to show up, but I was to- we were told to deliver this on this exact date, at this exact time, at this exact location to a Marty, a man referring to himself as Marty. Just just really cool scene. I like that a lot. And, of course, uh, it's pouring rain, and he's trying to read this old 1885 note and it no problem it can take all that rain no big deal <laughs> maybe dog taped it up for him we don't know <laughs> i mean it's a commercial for western union half of it by the way too yeah. let's just talk about that but the other part of it is well Marty but you got to remember that. that western union was around at that time so there yes, weren't a yes, whole were. lot that was <laughs> they're, they're still around too yeah, which is, I mean, that's the thing even in in 2021 here they're still around but the, it it is very much a hey we're going to be the kind of place that would deliver this i mean you know, not the post office you know, these people, right? So, because th- that, you know, post office delivers mail when they deliver it on their schedule. Western Union does stuff on your time because you pay for it, yeah. right? And that's the idea is this guy paid for this. Some some person we don't know paid for this in 1885. It's on the books. We got to do this. So, okay, we'll we'll do it. We'll go <laughs> along with it. No, tell him what Doc paid him. But, you know, because we do know he's got that suitcase full of money from all kind of time. So, you know, he, you know, and probably in 1885, as we'll find out, he's pretty resourceful. So, but he's alive. Don't come get me. I'm fine. You know, I'm good to go. Here's where you'll find the time machine. I've hidden it for you. Here's what you're going to need to be able to get it back up to speed with what you've got in 1955. And the first thing I, I thought about was like, wait a minute. How are they going to do that with the plutonium reactor? And I forgot. Aha, not that time machine. That one's gone. This is, this the, is the distribution one. time mm-hmm. machine. You just got to get the wheels going, get a little gas in it, repair the stuff that's rotted out, and you can get home. And so it's a good coda to watch Doc celebrate Marty being gone, and then here comes Marty again. And he passes out. Oh, that was a great scene, too. Yep. Yeah. That was a great scene. I loved the. I loved how they did the whole thing where he's celebrating, and then the fire is gone, and all of a sudden here comes another Marty running right behind him. Oh, good stuff. Yep. And the good little comedy because he's kind of chasing him in a circle for a second. He's like, no, I just I just got rid of you. <laughs> he's like, no, I've come back. I've come back from the future. It's so so overly dramatic. But the music's pumping. Alan Silvestri's scores work in there. And we get the great line. And that's where they leave us. Like, to be continued. And then we get the little scenes of the out west. And I'm like, okay, the DeLorean's being pulled by horses now. And there's somebody shooting a hat off somebody. And is that ZZ Top? And yeah, I mean, you don't know, you don't know what's happening. You just knew like that's coming soon. And I'm like, you know, it, I, I don't know that I've ever known another movie that was a commercial for its next movie. 
Man, that, yeah. that did that. You know, I mean, that, you knew like sequels may be coming on some things. Like, you know, they make a Star Wars movie. There's going to be another one. You know, it's part of the chapter or whatever. A James Bond movie's notoriously in with James Bond. We'll be back in, you know, what the next one will be called. Or we'll be back soon. They don't know what the next one will be called. But I don't, I can't think of another one that said, and here's scenes from the next one. Well, because they so, usually don't film them right back to back. Yeah. Right? You know, this is just yeah. not typical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies that were doing that didn't do that. Like, you... You know, more likely you're going to get that kind of stuff on a TV show. They'll be like, next week on, right. you know, Turning Roses or whatever. And then you get, then you get there, Turning Roses. There you go. That's your next great drama. <laughs> somebody somebody take that one over. But yeah, uh, yeah, we get that and they leave us leave us on the cliffhanger again, but on purpose this time. And yeah. Was it worth it? Eh, we'll see when we get to that third chapter. But right now it's time to do final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for Back to the Future Part 2. Brian. Well, like I said, Jay, these movies, we love watching them. Um, This is definitely not as strong as part one, uh, not even close, but there are some fun things in here. I really like what they did with the future um, as far as, you know, some of the things that they added in and the the 90s or the 80s cafe was always fun, um, things like that. But it had its weak moments, you know, Griff and the really weird style he had and dressed up and all that. and then, like you say, going back to Hill Valley in a really like dystopia uh, format, just awful, not really something we needed. Leaving Jennifer on a uh, porch that they don't even know whose is. <laughs> right. It may not even be hers. That's right? kind of yeah. rude. Ouch. Um, and, you know, that kind of thing. But it redeems itself with the 50s, going back to the 50s and, and reliving that whole section here there's some really great scenes and overall i'm satisfied when i watch this movie uh so i'm gonna give it a, a medium popcorn i think it's uh probably of the three of them the weakest of them but i still enjoy watching it yeah the the first two-thirds of this movie are all a setup just to get us to that better third act and some of it works some of it doesn't we've certainly pointed out a good chunk of both I'll say this for this movie, though. If its job is to be the setup, it's not to be the closer. These are baseball metaphor here. You don't have to go in there and get everybody out. You just got to get us to the last couple of three innings. Our old starter's done his four and two-thirds. It's time for you to come in and do the middle. Then we'll get get the other outs when we bring Rivera in or whoever. As a setup, it more or less works even though it does some ugly stuff I don't really like. And it does some kitty stuff that I don't really know is in line with what it's going. So the thing I'll say about this movie is it's incredibly uneven. It doesn't really know what it wants to be until it gets to 1955, because I think Zemeckis was way more interested in doing that. I think the actors were way more interested in playing that again and playing against what they had already done. Cause that's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if a movie is just going to be a, I mean, it's like a, cover album of your own stuff well i mean that's a bold concept how does it work and it more or less works and it leaves them with a great cliffhanger i wanted to see back to the future in the old west when i saw this as a kid and watching it now i'm like yeah i'm i want to see the third chapter i don't think i mean it's nowhere near what that first one is no it's almost hard to judge it on its own because i'll tell you the answer to the question now for me i don't think you can watch this one just by itself no without wanting to see something behind it i mean this yeah there's no reason it doesn't make sense if you watch it on its own it just doesn't no like yeah you can watch the empire strikes back and it's fine by itself you can even watch attack of the clones by itself and it's fine by itself the way you want to but you could (laughs) this one though yeah not so much doesn't quite work that way so for me it's a it's a medium popcorn uh it's not completely terrible it's also not completely good which is medium popcorn so Mm -hmm. it's medium popcorn it's got its moments it is. A, it can be fun for me if you're trying to watch this and maybe you're watching them together. You watch that first one and you're like, hooray. Okay, I'm going to put that second one on. I'm going to go like do the dishes. I may <laughs> dust something. may run the vacuum even for a little while, especially when we're in alternate 1985. But when we get back to 1955, I'm going to stop and I'll watch that because that's the part of the movie you need to pay attention to. And then you get to what will be part three. So yeah, medium popcorn for me, Brian. And can't wait to get to part three and see what that's all about.
Yeah, I agree. And yes, uh, this movie would make zero sense to anyone who watched it on its own. It would be you would be so confused as to what was going on and why they're going back and forth like that. You'd ha- you have to see part one to, to have any sense of what's going on in part two. Yeah, and I think you you need to go ahead and watch part three too, just to have closure. Because otherwise, like this <laughs> yeah. this this, per- this story has no purpose whatsoever. Right? <laughs> Why have you done this to yourself? Right. So we'll pick that one back up though next time, Brian, as we get to do part three. So lots of fun stuff here. Always fun talking about movies with you, folks. You can find all of our extensive archives on your favorite podcast feed, like on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you're finding podcasts, we are there. If you want to find a real neat way all of our podcast episodes are organized, go to our Letterboxd page. You can go there and sort by release date of the movie or release date of the episode, and you'll find all the stuff you want to find. You'll also find direct links to our Anchor site where you can find your podcast feed. Listen to the show at your leisure. Follow us on social media, at Pod is our tag, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, if you look on Twitter and Instagram, you can find our link tree. That'll give you links to all of our other stuff. Occasionally on our Facebook page, we do some Facebook Live stuff. So check that out. Always a lot of fun. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Film Strip. Thank you for listening to Film Strip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.